Can you tell me who's in charge? That, that phrase still gives me a little bit of a shiver. Um, I used to work in a department store just after I finished school. Uh, I've worked in kind of libraries and, and in offices. Any job with the public, if you hear that phrase, you kind of get a little shiver. So has anyone kind of experienced someone coming up to you and be like, uh, can you tell me who's in charge, please? Normally, at least in my case, normally it means that I'm in trouble or that I've done something wrong. Or even worse, if I am the person in charge, then someone's coming to find me to tell someone else off or, or to complain. Can you tell me who's in charge is a, a slightly terrifying question in lots of contexts. But I wonder even this afternoon, not in the context of, of, of work or, or you know, in, in restaurants or, or offices or somewhere, I wonder if someone came up to you and, and asked you, well, who, who's in charge of your life? Can you tell me who's in charge? If you lived anywhere near ancient Babylon, you wouldn't need to ask that question. You wouldn't need to ask to find out the person in charge because everybody knew who it was, King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was, basically, he was God. Like, not in the way, not in the way that we would understand it here in this room. Uh, we are called Trinity Chippenham, not Nebuchadnezzar Chippenham. That's a very important distinction to make. But really, Nebuchadnezzar thought of himself as, as God. He was, he was the king. He was the most powerful man on the planet. But one morning, and, and here this is what we're going to look at in Daniel chapter 2. One morning he woke up completely freaked out because of a dream. Maybe some of you know a little bit what that's like. You wake up and there's this, this dream that you can't shake. But for Nebuchadnezzar, it wasn't just a nightmare, like turning up to his royal throne room in just his underwear. It wasn't that kind of nightmare. There was something more, more serious about it, more, more, more profound, even more, even more ominous, maybe. There was something significant about his dream. There was meaning to it, but he couldn't work it out. So that morning, he did, he did what he always did when he had an issue like this. Um, he asked his top advisors. So he called them in. And these top advisors were essentially kind of his religious gurus. Um, they, were, they were high flyers with salaries to match. They were at the top of their game, top of their profession. And basically, their job was to assess and predict the future so that the king could make every decision he needs to make with wisdom and with sort of perfect clarity, as gods and kings need to do, right? So that was their job. They, they came, they, you know, they looked at all the uh, kind of news that, that was going on, they looked at the weather, they looked at all these sort of things, and their job was to be able to predict the future, give the king kind of this, this, this way in to some message of the gods so they could predict the future of what was going on. And so it was just quite a normal thing in some ways, for Nebuchadnezzar to do this. So he called his religious gurus. They came in, sort of bowing into his throne room and inching away because they obviously liked their jobs and they respected him a little bit. But the king was visibly on edge. Today was a bit different. He wasn't reading the newspaper. He was just, like, freaked out, sitting on his throne. So they did what any of us, I think, would do, and they, they asked him about the dream. They said to him, okay, O king, tell us the dream. And then we'll tell you what it means. It's fair enough, right? That's kind of an obvious statement to make. Uh, but the king didn't think so. This dream had, had really troubled him, really freaked him out. So 
he, he had to know what it meant. He had to know what it meant. So there was no room for, for mistakes, no room for, for, for them faking knowing what it meant. And the only way that he could be 100% certain was if he kept what happened in his dream secret. So he said to them, look, you tell me the dream. And then I'll know that your, you know, God's sources, whoever it is that you talk to, are in charge. And then you can tell me what it means and I'll believe you. Have a look at verse 5 in your Bible. So again, page 7 through 7, if you've still got it. This is what uh, the king said, verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, that's just a, like a weird title for religious gurus, really. Uh, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. It's a bit gruesome, isn't it? But, to be fair to King Nebuchadnezzar, credit where credit's due, he also said, verse 6, but if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. So that was Nebuchadnezzar's little test. He had to know what the dream meant. He, He had to know who was really in charge. So he had this little test. And the advisors knew as I'm sure you can work out, the advisors knew that they were in trouble. How can anyone guess a dream? Like if I came to you on you know, next Sunday morning or just you know, texted you tomorrow morning and said, oh, I had a dream last night. You should tell me what it is. You're just going to look at me a little bit funny. Um, they knew they were in trouble. They knew they were in trouble, but they also knew that Nebuchadnezzar didn't have an HR department. He, he didn't give out P55s. He didn't fire people. He threw people into fires, but that's different, I guess. Um, there was no sort of you know, backup plan for them to have. There was absolutely no way out. And so what they did, they knew they were signing their own death warrant, but they kept saying, look, Nebuchadnezzar, king, you've got to tell us what it is. And then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll interpret it, but tell us what it is first. And he was like, no, no, you tell me what the dream was. And then I'll believe you when you can interpret it. And eventually they gave the king as clear and an honest statement that they could think of in verse 10 and 11. This is kind of the end of the matter. So the religious gurus answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing. Uh, Of any magician or enchanter, or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. That's a slight understatement, I think. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. That was their big plea to Nebuchadnezzar. Only the gods could reveal to you this dream, but they live way up there. The gods could do it, they don't give a monkeys. It says absolutely impossible. Completely impossible. And if you look at verse 12, you can see that Nebuchadnezzar reacted, um, well, as maybe exactly how you'd expect, just absolute rage, utter pure rage, and said, well, that's it. You're going to die. I'm going to kill all of you. That is completely game over. All of my advisors, all of my officials, you are going to be torn limb from limb and, and all the rest of what he said. That is the absolute end of the matter. 
And then we think of poor Daniel. So the guy who this book is, is named after, who we met last week in the beginning of our series. You think, well, poor Daniel, he wasn't even in the room when this happened. But he was in big trouble. Last week, uh, you might remember, in Daniel chapter 1, we saw that the God of the Bible, the true God, was with Daniel and his friends. But Daniel had only been an advisor for, for a short time, maybe a matter of weeks, probably months. And now he was going to be killed on the orders of the most powerful man on the planet. Terrible timing. If he was just a year later, he might have been okay. Terrible timing. Absolutely no escape. But Daniel was calm. In the face of King Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers coming at him, Daniel was calm. He was polite. And he asked the king for some time. What would you have done with that time? So you know that the king's soldiers are coming. The king is ready to kill you. And he gives you some time. What do you do with that time? With the most powerful man on the planet. I know what I would do. I'd run to the airport. I'm done. I'm out. Okay, guys, quick. You've got to come with me. We've got to go to the airport. We've got to go to some jungle somewhere. And we've just got to lay low. And the airport is the quickest way out of here. That's what I would have done. But do you know what Daniel did? Daniel went to a prayer meeting. I don't know if any of you thought that you would do that. Uh, but isn't that a slightly strange thing to do? In the face of this king, Daniel, Daniel goes, to his pre- goes to a prayer meeting. He grabs his three best friends and they basically have a prayer meeting. That's his big idea. He, Daniel and his friends knew who was really in charge. I think that's why they did what they did. They knew who was really in charge and they knew that the real king, the one that's really in charge, isn't far away like Nebuchadnezzar's religious gurus thought that he was. So Daniel and his three friends prayed. With everything on the line, they prayed together seeking mercy from the God of heaven. That phrase is verse 18. Seeking mercy from the God of heaven. They knew God. They knew that he is above and really in charge. They knew that he's a God of mercy who hears and responds to his people. So they, they trusted him. They went to him, had a prayer meeting. They trusted him with their life. And there God answered and revealed the dream. Now maybe that feels a bit of an anticlimax because maybe you've read the book of Daniel before. Maybe you know that this book of Daniel has 12 chapters. We're on chapter two. So of course Daniel doesn't die. There's 10 more chapters for him to do stuff yet. So maybe you think it's a bit of anticlimax and that's fine. But Daniel knew that it was no small thing. He, he knew that it was such a big deal what he was praying for in the context of what he was praying for. Daniel basically suggested that the gods of Babylon were rubbish in comparison to his god, Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar had set up this test to basically say, tell me who's in charge. I need to know who's in charge because the one in charge has to tell me the dream and tell me what it means. Can you tell me who's in charge? Well, Daniel knew the person in charge. He knew the king really in charge. But before he runs to tell the little king of Babylon, he stops and he thanks and he praises this real king, the God of heaven. Have a look at verses 20 
21, 22, and 23. This is Daniel's response. Daniel blessing the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. That's two really important things in his kind of dealing with Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it? That there's a God with wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the king's matter. The same God who removes kings and sets up kings, hears Daniel and saves him. Isn't that a cool phrase? Particularly for Daniel to say that. Watch Daniel's experience of kings. Not that positive so far, really. But there is a God. There is a king who sets up kings and removes kings. And he saves Daniel and his friends. So Daniel goes to the other king, Nebuchadnezzar, with the answer. But notice who gets the credit. Look at that next section from verse 26. This is uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel interacting The king, in verse 26, declared to Daniel, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, Well, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the the king has asked. But, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel's not being humble. He's not being like British and saying, oh, can you do this? Oh, no, no, I, I couldn't, I can't, you know, it's, it's not me, it's not me. No, that's kind of a like, self-deprecating kind of British thing. Um, I'm not very good at being self-deprecating, so I wouldn't have done it. But um, that's a joke. Um, Daniel wasn't being polite. He, he was just confident. Can you do this, Daniel? Can you do what the other people can't? Well, no one can, but there is a God in heaven. No human can do what you've asked, King Nebuchadnezzar. The gurus in the corner, they've, they've proved that, haven't they? What did they say, basically? Well, only the gods can do it, but, but they won't. Just as an aside, I wonder if you've ever had a conversation with someone about God stuff, you know, maybe a neighbor or a colleague or someone in your family, and I wonder if the way that they've described God just doesn't fit with, with the way that you view God. I wonder if, if, if as you've talked with them and they've described, you know, if God actually exists, then he's like this, or God is like this. I wonder if you just think, well, that, doesn't, that doesn't really sit with the God of the Bible. Maybe they've talked about a God who is distant, a God who is really powerless, or even just, well, there isn't even a God that cares for us at all. When in that kind of situation, Daniel says, Actually, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And we'll come back to that contrast in a few minutes because it's absolutely monumental. It is absolutely the key, I think, to this whole chapter, really to the whole book of Daniel, this, this um, uh, contrast between the God of the Bible and any other, any other God. But we'll come back to that in a few minutes because, because you want to know the dream as well, right? So you've kind of given this dream the big sell, 
And you want to hear it too, I'm sure. So, have a look at the next paragraph uh, in, uh, in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, Daniel says that, um, that God has revealed to Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, God has given you insight, a picture, into what was to come. So I'm going to read verses 31 to 33, but if you look at the screen, we're going to have, uh, well, I don't know how accurate it is, but it, it kind of gives us a help of each thing of the dream. So I'll read it, but you look up at the screen, okay? So this is verse 31. So you saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was a fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. There we go. So there's another one of the whole thing together. There you go. Um, You can kind of see why Nebuchadnezzar was a little bit freaked out, can't you? (laughs) It's a little bit of a scary thing, this kind kind of massive, great weird coloured metal statue. But Daniel then tells the king the interpretation. And it's absolutely fascinating. He basically says each section, each of the different sections of the statue is a kingdom. So one after the other, each slightly inferior to the one before it. And with a little bit of kind of Bible investigation, a little bit of history study, we can actually name each of these kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. And it starts with this bombshell in verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Wow, that's pretty cool, isn't it? They have this dream of this massive statue with a gold head, and that head's you. You are the head, you are the gold, you are kind of the best of the best, kind of the king of all of these kingdoms. That's a pretty cool start to the, to the dream. Well, the next two, um, Daniel describes, and they're impressive, but they're not gold impressive. So you have the next one, which is uh, Medo-Persia, so that's a group of people, the Medes and the Persians, they came together um, to kind of overthrow Um, Babylon. After them came Greece. And these two kingdoms really controlled for those centuries that they were in charge. They controlled the whole of the known world. They controlled pretty much everything. And then after Greece, you have these, these iron legs marching and crushing everything in their path, which was Rome. And then after that, you had these weird toes. You notice that kind of weird mixture, combination, a a divided mixture in the toes. Now I'm going to suggest that those, that that kingdom um, is still to come in our future. Um, So some Christians would disagree and and that's fine and we can talk about it afterwards if you want to, but I'm going to suggest that those, those those feet and the ten toes, um, I'm going to suggest that they are still to come in our future But the point isn't so much that. The point is this. This dream happened in roughly sometime in the 590s BC. Okay, so 590, 590 BC. 
And just think of the incredibly accurate detail. 70 years before Babylon was overthrown and the Medo-Persian Empire came along. 70 years before. 250 years before Alexander the Great and Greece. And about four centuries before the Caesars and Rome. See, this isn't just guesswork. This isn't just a pretty statue. This is accurate to an incredibly specific degree. Read this dream and then tell me who's in charge. God doesn't dwell with flesh. God doesn't give them monkeys. No way. Absolutely no way. There is a God in heaven. He's a God of mercy who sets up and removes kings. But there's more. There's more to the dream. I've missed out a really important part of the dream. As Nebuchadnezzar saw the statue, he also saw a, a small rock, like a, like a pebble, I guess, uh, appear from nowhere. And um, the, 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 this pebble just struck the feet of the statue and completely destroyed it. Obliterated the statue, turned to dust. No more statue anymore. And that little pebble that did all that damage, that little pebble grew and grew and grew into a mountain that filled the whole earth. That's the end of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. What about the interpretation? Well, that's in verses 44 and 45. And Daniel says this, in the days of those kings, so those kind of feet ten kings, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. What do you make of all of that? Just a fun history lesson, if history lessons are ever fun. Or is there something more? See, not only does God know what will happen to Daniel, he doesn't just know what's going to happen in Babylon or after Babylon or after um, the Medo-Persians or after Greece. He doesn't just know those, that kind of stuff. <clears throat> but he promises to wrap up history with an everlasting kingdom. That everlasting kingdom is the kingdom of his son, Jesus. It's bigger and it's better and it's safer than any other kingdom in history. It's a kingdom that starts small, but is going to outlast and outgrow every earthly kingdom. So who's in charge? Can you tell me who's in charge? Most people around us... um, I think, are convinced that the gods and kings of this world really don't give a monkeys. You think of, you know, presidents, prime ministers, even kings, they look in charge, don't they? they? They have the power, they have the significance, they have might, as much if not more might and power than Nebuchadnezzar had in Babylon. But for Daniel, he lived in God's kingdom. Yeah, he was in Babylon. He was from Jerusalem. He was in Babylon. But really, he lived in God's kingdom. 
And he trusted his God even with his whole life. And that's the point. Daniel lived in God's kingdom and trusted his God even with his whole life. If I was being honest uh, with you, um, at the moment, kind of the political global stuff that we see in the news, I am not a huge fan of some of the world's leaders at the moment. They kind of make me nervous. We're not going to go into that really. You know, we have, we have President Trump, we have Theresa May, and we have other people. Uh, but Daniel had King Nebuchadnezzar. Did Daniel freak out? No. He had a prayer meeting. Because the God of heaven removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel lived in God's kingdom, not Nebuchadnezzar's. We have all sorts of problems in our life, don't we? Day to day, money problems, family, relationship problems, work problems. Just problems have their own problems sometimes in our week, don't they? We have all sorts of problems to live with. Daniel had exile, had indoctrination. Uh, Daniel survived King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel was rewarded by King Nebuchadnezzar, but he was never really in control. But that was okay for Daniel. Why was that okay? Because he lived in God's kingdom. Because there is a God in heaven, and Daniel lived in his kingdom and invested, gave his life living in God's kingdom, not Nebuchadnezzar's. Because there is a good God in heaven... We can trust him with presidents and prime ministers. Because there is a God in heaven, because there is a kingdom of God, I can trust him with my paycheck. I can trust him with my ring finger. I can trust him with anything that threatens to rule my time and my effort. And it's the same for you too. Today's February the 19th, 2017. I checked... So can you tell me who's in charge? Can, can you tell me who's, who's your king? Who, who's ruling you? Who is in charge of you? Because it's not Donald Trump, and it's not Theresa May, and it's not your bank account, it's not your kids, it's not your age, it's not your health, it's not your fashion. The temptation is, is, is for us to, 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 to live for those things. Our temptation is for our heart to beat just for those things. But Daniel chapter 2 tells us that there is a God in heaven. So trust him with your life. Give everything to him. Live in his kingdom. For him in his kingdom. And that's what it means to go against the flow. This whole series of the book of Daniel we're doing over the next few weeks is called Against the Flow. And this is one of the roots of going, living against the flow. Daniel went against the flow in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom because Daniel was a part of God's kingdom. So don't run to the airport. Don't run away and hide if times get tough. But run to our God who is there and loves you. If you're in trouble, or if you feel like you are in trouble, grab some friends and have a prayer meeting. How does that sound? If you're in trouble, grab some friends and have a prayer meeting. Seek mercy from the God of heaven. How quickly do you respond to any issue in life by praying? It tells me a lot that I like that my first thought is, is hardly ever to pray. Like what kingdom 
do I live in every day if my reaction is, actually, I can probably rule myself? Seek mercy from the God of heaven. Jesus is that stone, that pebble in the king's dream. He is, Jesus is the real king. His kingdom will last forever. And so my question for you this afternoon is simply, is he your king? It's a simple question, but it might take a bit of time to answer. Is that Jesus your king? Do you live in his kingdom? Because whatever the politics of the world at the moment, whatever the kind of week you've had, whatever the kind of day even that you've had, Jesus is going to come back. And that is good news. Because when he does, the kingdoms of the earth will be flattened and everything else will be made new. Jesus is coming back in the future for his people. And that is good news. In that day, there will be no more fake news. There'll be no more fears. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more statues. All around us, wherever we go, all around us, there is then temptation to live for the now, isn't there? That's a fair point, I think. A temptation everywhere to live for, for the now, to invest life and energy into this earthly kingdom, this, this now. Typically, I'm the king of the earthly kingdom, but we won't talk about that for now, but that's everywhere, isn't it? That's kind of normal life, is to live, you know, just give everything to your kingdom, this earthly kingdom, right now. That there's a temptation to put our hopes into, what, a different president, um, a, different, a different job, um, a bigger pension, better clothes, a better place to live. There's a temptation to put our, all our energies and hope into that into some earthly kingdom. But that's not what Daniel did. Daniel up against huge pressure, literally about to lose his life. I don't think any of us is going to experience anything quite that serious. Many, many Christians in the world experience that pretty much every day. We probably won't, but there's still that temptation to live for an earthly kingdom now, to put all your energy into now, even if now is your pension in you know, 20 years' time or whatever. Just to put all your energy into the kingdom now. And Daniel chapter 2 says, no, don't do that. There is a God in heaven. There is a kingdom of God with Jesus as the king. And he's going to come back. Are you going to go against the flow and live for his kingdom? Are you going to walk and put your effort and time and energies and gifts, and talents, and skills? Are you going to put your life, invest your life, into God's kingdom with Jesus as your king? What will you say tomorrow when someone asks you, oh, excuse me, can you, uh, can you tell me who's in charge? Can you tell me who's in charge? Jesus is coming back for his people, and his kingdom will last forever. Wouldn't it be great if we were a church that, that went against the flow? Not in a, like a rude way, but just go against the flow and living not for this earthly kingdom, but for the kingdom that is above with Jesus as king. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, uh, we, we thank you for that good news of Jesus. We thank you that his kingdom is here and it is coming. We thank you that one day Jesus will come back <clears throat> for his people. And Father, I pray for us individually and for us as a church that we would be a group of people that live for your kingdom. <clears throat> I pray that we'd be a people that go against the flow, that are subversive because we live for Jesus. We want to live with, with his love, his, his priorities, his loves, uh, living to please him. So Father, we need your help uh, to do that, but also uh, we just need to, we need each other for that, Father. So, so we pray too that as a church community, group, family, uh, that we would be a people who meet together and have a prayer meeting and go to you, the God of heaven, a God full of mercy and kindness. Amen.